The opioid scourge is as much a rural as an urban problem. The Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, part of Health and Human Services, has spent five years and hundreds of millions of dollars in grants to rural health services providers to help battle a nearly overwhelming problem. For its work, the HRSA team leading the effort has been named a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program, joining me in studio with the story. HRSA's Rural Strategic Initiatives Director, Megan Meacham. Ms. Meacham, good to have you with us. Hi, thank you for having us. And Team Lead, Sarah O'Donnell. Ms. O'Donnell, good to have you. Pleasure to be here. And Deputy Director, Allison Hutchins, is the third member. She's not with us today. But let's get to the crux of the problem. Just tell us, what is the opioid scourge problem in rural America? I think we tend to focus on the cities a lot. Yeah, Tom, absolutely. So back in 2018, when this initiative was created, we had data showing us what drug overdose deaths were occurring across the nation. And at the time, the backdrop was that in rural communities, there were actually a higher rate of deaths from overdose than in our urban communities. So like you said, you often think of urban communities, population centers as being where we should invest our funding and our attention. But really, we found this gap and it was something we wanted to address. So we created the Rural Communities Opioid Response Program. I guess that belief maybe is a leftover of the crack cocaine days, which was mainly an urban problem, perhaps. That could be part of it. But it sounds like it took a data-driven approach to this to discover the fact that there was this problem that, again, per capita was worse in rural than in urban. Absolutely. Yep. So CDC tracks overdose data deaths, and we knew what the numbers were. We also have rural health research centers that we fund through our office, and they were able to track some of the data and show us what was happening in rural communities, along with not just the actual rate of overdose deaths, but the other challenges that rural communities face, such as workforce shortages or longer transportation distances to get to providers, fewer medication-assisted treatment providers in particular. And this is probably a good point at which to explain how HRSA itself works. You don't deliver health services directly like some government agencies. Yeah. So the way that we get funding out to communities to support them in addressing the crisis is through a grant mechanism. And so basically what happens is we put out what's called a notice of funding opportunity, which describes the purpose of what we would like communities to be doing to address their needs. And then they put in applications and through kind of an external unbiased process, the applications get evaluated and then funding goes out. But what's really special about the programs that we have is that we write those funding opportunities, particularly to be flexible, understanding that if you've seen one rural community, you've seen one rural community. And so we make sure that we work in the ability for these communities to really address the needs and the unique needs that they have, you know, on the ground. And just from an operational perspective, there are a network of providers that are funded by HRSA, I guess maybe state funding goes into them, that exist for general health care in rural areas. Did the grants go to the same institutions to expand their services, or did you also maybe grow new places that could help with specifically the opioids? We for sure grew new places. So we have many grantees that this is the first time they've ever received federal funds, which is really exciting because we're opening up a new world for these organizations and giving them new opportunities to serve the people living in their communities. 
And then kind of by the same token, we provide them a lot of support every step of the way. So we have a whole team of project officers who work with grantees every single day to make sure that they understand, you know, the web (laughs) of the bureaucracy and the complex federal granting requirements. And then we also have technical assistance for these awardees as well. So especially for our new folks who are joining the federal family, they're very well supported. And is the federal funding to these existing and new organizations their only funding or do the states partner with you also? So I would say it's definitely a collaborative approach. We provide one of the pots of funding. So as Sarah said, some of these grantees, our programs are kind of their first entrance into the federal funding, or, or it might be the first time with HRSA funding. Maybe they've only received SAMHSA funding in the past. So we really also work to emphasize that complementary approach and making sure that what our funds are doing are complementing and not duplicating what the other funds are doing. So we hear from grantees telling us, you know, with the SAMHSA state funds or with any other funds that we have, we're able to do, you know, these amazing things. And then where we're able to take and leverage your funds is filling these gaps of the things we're not able to do. So we really are looking at that. You know, we're trying to be good stewards of federal dollars and making sure that they can have a whole of community approach. Because duplication of grants or services can be a problem, too, in expending federal dollars. And you want to make sure your dollars are uniquely used. Correct. And that's what's really neat about our program is that so many of the other funding comes down and it's, again, it's more either population centric, you know, population based hitting the larger cities, or it's coming through multiple streams before it gets out to the communities, whereas ours is direct funding straight to the communities to address their needs. We are speaking with Megan Meacham. She's director of the Rural Strategic Initiatives Division at the Health Resources and Services Administration. And with Sarah O'Donnell is a team lead there. They, along with Allison Hutchings, are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. And let's talk about opioid problem itself. What do these organizations, now that they're funded, what do they do? What kind of services do they actually provide? A lot of it depends on exactly what they need, but we cover the whole range. So from prevention services, we have grantees that work with children in schools to prevent opioid use when they become adults. There's a wide variety of treatment services that are offered. So for opioid use in particular, we know that the evidence-based approach is through medication-assisted treatment. And so we have a lot of grantees who are supporting people in receiving medication-assisted treatment training providers to provide it, and then supporting those providers so that they don't kind of feel alone and isolated when they're in a rural community and faced with a patient that has opioid use disorder. We also support psychostimulant use. We have a whole program that's focused there, and those grants really help folks take both a mental health approach and a contingency management approach, which are kind of the evidence-based methods for addressing psychostimulant use. And then recovery services, so providing recovery housing, setting up recovery community organizations, creating pathways for people in recovery to make sure that they can access housing and jobs. And I think what's really great about a lot of the work that our grantees are doing is that it's all-encompassing. And so we really encourage folks to think about the whole human. So it's great if you're receiving treatment for your opioid use disorder, but it doesn't help if you don't have care for your kids or you don't have food or you don't have somewhere to live. And so as part of our programs, we support our grantees in addressing kind of that whole environment in which these individuals are living so they can really be successful in recovery. Right, because there are economic and social factors in rural areas. And a lot of rural areas of the United States, small towns and stuff, you know, you ride through them. 
they look poor. They look like, you know, time left them, the factory closed 25 years ago, this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, they face a lot of challenges. I think it's also important to note that rural communities have a special sort of resilience. And the work that we're seeing done there every single day is just truly inspiring. And so, yes, they face a lot of challenges, economic challenges, you know, distance to care. Megan named several of those. Access to health workforce. There's just not as many people living there, right? So not as many people to do the jobs or people leave, get their education and and becoming a medical provider and then don't return. But at the same time, the dedication and the resilience of our organizations in these rural communities is, is just amazing. And the way that the community comes together to help these folks who are suffering some, from substance use disorder is, is incredible. How do you measure the program? How do you know you're having a positive effect? I mean, it's one thing to witness activity, but is there some kind of a metric that says, yes, we're making progress here? Yeah, so just like every federal program, we have performance metrics. We collect data from our grantees. So, you know, some of the things we look at is even just how many people receive direct services. So we know that our last fully grant year of data from our grantees, over 2 million rural residents received some sort of direct service, prevention, treatment, recovery service. We know how many, you know, that more than 112,000 individuals received medication-assisted treatment that might otherwise not have received it without these programs working in their communities. I think it's also important to note that it's a lot of work for our grantees to collect all of this data, and we use it every single day. We use it to make sure that we're giving them the technical assistance that they need. We use it to figure out what new programs we need to put out. And so it's just so fundamental to our program is the data that we collect, not only because we report it out, but because we use it in our daily operations to make sure we're doing the best we can for the communities we serve. And do they submit it and do you collect it online? At least there's not a lot of paper involved here. Correct. We definitely have an automated electronic system. You know, we have our own system of how we're collecting the data. And then we actually have an evaluator as well who helps us with kind of like making sure that the data is clean and does the analytics of the data, helps us determine what some of the best practices are based on the data, as Sarah said, you know, helps us determine where maybe technical assistance is needed if we're not hitting certain benchmarks or seeing some of the data that we think we should be seeing, you know, where can we offer more assistance to the grant recipients to just help, again, make sure we're being the best stewards of federal dollars and having the best impact that we can. And will this go on forever? Is there an endpoint to the program or, I mean, opioids are still around. So we definitely cannot speak to the federal budget. Um, that is, you know, who we, can? We, do, <laughs> we do what we're um, what we're given um, for as long as it is decided that this funding should continue to come to us at HRSA. We will be happy to continue managing this program and meeting the needs of rural communities. Megan Meacham is director of the Rural Strategic Initiatives Division at the Health Resources and Services Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Sarah O'Donnell is team lead there. Good to have you in. Thank you so much. And they, along with Allison Hutchings, the deputy director, are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Listen to the Federal Drive on your device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello. 
and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not just nice to have. We rely on them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, 
And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely casts the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed. Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay. I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Uh, secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the, and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. 
So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.